Hello and welcome to the CMAX podcast. My name is Brenda Lee. I'm the marketing communication specialist and I'm here with Clarissa McCallum, marketing specialist. Hello, Clarissa. Hi, Brenda. Today we've got a guest with us that has traveled the world absolutely everywhere. We are one-on-one with Michael Hombachers, CMAX's Director of International Sales and Business Development. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me today. We were visiting yesterday and today, and you know, you've been with us for a couple of years, and we decided that this was the most we've talked yet on this yeah, project and a couple others. So that's been kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has been. So yesterday you were talking to me about some other stuff and we started visiting about all the countries that are part of your territory. And it seems like you um, run the UN, the United Nations. <laughs> so tell yeah, us a little I, bit about the countries and where you go. Yeah, no, I do have a very wide variety of countries. You know, I work in the Middle East, so Egypt, Jordan, Kuwait, Qatar, UAE, Oman and Saudi. I uh, work in Southeast Asia, so Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, a couple other Thailand, a couple other smaller ones there, uh, kind of Northern Africa, um, one country in Europe as uh, as, as France, and then I, I manage uh, the subsidiary business out of Mexico as well as our uh, wholesale business in Mexico. That's wow. a few different cultures. <laughs> definitely is, definitely is. A wide yeah. variety of food when you travel. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, your palate is uh, well well seasoned at this point. So a lot of your focus has been on the Middle East, which you mentioned quite a few countries, you know, just now. How many times have you visited? Oh, that's uh, probably into the Middle East area about 10 to 12 times in the last uh, last two years. That's like every other month in two years. Yeah. Yeah, it's a few few airplane hours. <laughs> a few plane hours, yeah. yeah. We'll get into a little bit um, more about one of your countries. Um, I'd like to know a little bit more about what a typical dairy in Saudi looks like. Are they the largest in the world? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, you know, definitely to start with the second question there, they are some of the largest dairies in the world. They'd be ranking in your top 10, 20 dairies in the world. Um, and what a typical Saudi dairy looks like, they're big. They're big. It, it's, you know, for my first time going there, it was a little bit of shell shock. Just looking at the overall size and scale and how these farms are managed when we're talking 40, 50, 60, 100,000 cows in, you know, a single complex with, you know, multiple different sites. You look at the how these dairies are arranged, how they're set up and how they're managed is quite quite mind-boggling and quite uh, takes quite a bit of uh, facilitation and management. So it's it's quite something. Uh, I mean, doing a little bit of reading, um, and I, I read that a Saudi cow needs about 30 gallons of water a day for cooling and drinking. And in North America, it's it's closer to about four to five gallons. So where does this water come from? Is it sustainable? Yeah, so when we look at these dairies in Saudi, we got to remember that the uh, the temperature there is uh, is pretty warm. Like uh, I've been there and it's been 55 degrees out Celsius, not Fahrenheit, Celsius. Um, and so, you know, that's that's pretty warm. Um, and these cows, they don't do so well in that temperature. So they've got uh, they've got pretty intricate 
cooling systems in the barn that do use a lot of water. Um, but, you know, when you walk from outside in 55 degree weather and go into the barn and it's 25, 30 degrees Celsius, it's a pretty big temperature drop. And trust me, it's pretty refreshing. Um, you know, they they drill wells. <laughs> they drill wells and these are deep wells. And, uh, you know, diesel's cheap there, I guess. So if they can pump the water. Mm -hmm. And just for reference, for anybody who doesn't know, that's 131 degrees Fahrenheit, according to Google. So it is hot. The dry heat, though. It's a dry heat. It's a dry heat. Oh, yeah, at least there's dry that. Heat. Yeah, no humidity. Um, so just thinking about these dairies, has it always been this way? I mean, I think we could consider it to be a bit extreme compared to even large dairies in North America. And, and what what caused that? What drove that? scale of dairy in Saudi? So, you know, um, I think a bit of it's cultural that, you know, it, it's a bit of a pride factor within their culture to be able to feed your people or to feed, be a, a provider of food for your, your, your fellow people. And so I think that's part of it. I think there's some initiatives put forward by some of the crown princes in the regions to, for food sustainability. And uh, in Saudi, they go big. I don't know how else to put it. They go big. Yeah, so their goal was to be, you know, to supply their own, to not have to import dairy products, agricultural products. And so when they made the the decision that they were going to have their own dairies, obviously they needed processing plants. They needed to be able to make yogurt and drinkable milk and cheeses and different things. So, you know, let's talk about that vertical integration. Yeah, so so in Saudi, most of the producers there would be uh, vertically integrated. So meaning they pr they produce the milk, they process the milk, they they market it in the stores, in their own shops, and these aspects. So these dairies are completely vertically integrated, um, and they process you know a hundred percent of their own product. Sometimes they're bringing in product from other local smaller dairies, and they're they're all branded as their own. They all have their own brand and shelf space. And when you're traveling through you know, some of the other Middle East countries and other regions, you do see the, their product on the shelves there. And it, it's quite something, you know, they they all have their different product lines. And depending which company it is, they have sometimes pushing 200 different dairy products or brand labels that they, they market with. And sometimes it's more than just dairy. I've seen juices and, and different things on their websites. Yeah, so if we look at a lot of these, they they are multi multifaceted uh, businesses. So a lot of them will be, you know, they have the dairy, they have the a fruit plant, they have the vegetable or sorry, uh, vegetable farms. That some of them even have, um, you know, feedlot and poultry operations as well within their uh, their portfolio. So these are quite large, you know, from our, like large businesses. And as we sit in North America. You know, when we're looking at Europe and different places, do you think that this kind of vertical integration, we're seeing it a little bit, but probably not to this extreme. Is it the future? You know, if, if you ask me as a, as we look at the margins and the cost of production and these aspects, I do think that people are going to be looking for ways to value add their product. I think that it is going to become uh, more common than we've seen historically, um, you know, it's keeping a bit more money in the the hands of the producers if we can self-process. Mm -hmm. No, that that makes sense. And you know, in your trips to Saudi, 
and you're on dairies, obviously visiting with them. Who are you meeting with? Is there a herdsman sort of person? Or are you meeting with more in a boardroom setting with owners and management staff? Uh, you know, not necessarily boots on the ground sort of guys. Yeah, it, it, it's a combination of both. So, you know, a lot of times we're meeting with the overall farm managers and the people and some of their um, genetic advisor teams. So the repro teams and those aspects. So we're meeting with them many times in a board setting where we're going over some of the new technologies available through CMEX, some of the strategies and planning and solutions that we utilize. We go through and talk about how many replacements we need to make, what kind of beef on dairy strategies we can be implementing, how these work for the way they're paid or their feedlot settings, and how these genetics are going to go through there. And then we go, we, there is uh, much time spent with the boots on the ground people, the people actually doing the inseminating, utilizing the product on a day-to-day, -day, talking about how we can set up the optimates and these aspects to make it more streamlined for them in the functional uh, application of the product. And just a side question, how many employees would some of these dairies have? Well, oh, I, I don't know if I can answer that. Like the lots, lots, lots. like when, <laughs> <laughs> when, because there's so many different facets of the business, yeah. like mm -hmm. it's, it's very hard to give an accurate count. Right on. So back to genetics, like, do they give you criteria and, you know, do you submit a tender then? You, you bid for the year? Do they buy quarterly? How, how does all that work? Yeah, so with each of the dairies, it operates a little bit differently. Some of them are uh, proof run to proof run tender where we submit a, a, these are the genetics that meet the farm X criteria. Um, other ones we work with through the CMEX Work Solutions, and we come up with bulls that meet their client index, and we we propose those bulls. And then we take uh, they are large shipments when they go, just because of the the transport cost and those aspects. But they when they go, they are are large shipments. And you know some of the farms we're partnering with, and we're we're developing plans and strategies that we really use to move forward with. Is part of that strategy genomic testing? Genomic testing is a, a plan and strategy that has been discussed and um, is being looked at. The Saudi government does have uh, their own working aspect on the genomic testing that is making the marketplace a little bit tougher. Mm -hmm. So when you're having these conversations, what are they really looking at, you know, as far as buying product from CMEX or anybody? Are they, is it fertility, health, fluid milk, fats? Like what are they, what are their top traits? So as we know, it's a hot environment, and we all know that uh, the heat and cows is not necessarily your best mix. Um, so we're we're always looking for you know fertility fertility traits across the gamut of uh, fertility traits, and it's it's very much a fluid market there. So we're looking at you know fluid driven bulls uh, or genetics because they don't make any really processed cheeses or those aspects it's mostly fluid consumed products so you know when we're looking there you know 3.3 percent butter fat is kind of their benchmark and just sitting back what did what have you learned from going to dairies like the saudi dairies and what do you think other dairymen around the world could learn from someplace like that some of those large-scale dairies 
Yeah, I think some of these large scale dairies and the way that they operate, they manage the animals, they look at profit traits. I think that they are very um, on the ball and understanding what needs to be done and how the trends influence their overall milk flow and production. And I think just that overall management of those aspects is, is very, very integral to any dairyman. For sure. Well, this has been really interesting. Clarissa, did you have anything mm -hmm. else that you wanted to talk about? Not today, but I'm sure I will have lots of questions for you at some point. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to have you back, Michael. Yeah, there's talk lots and lots of you. countries to talk about here. Yeah, yeah more than one, so. <laughs> <laughs> you have more than one. Lots to choose from. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And, um, you know, wish you well in all those travels. Thank you, and thanks for having me today. Thank you.